0: Good morning, church. It is Sunday morning, January 14th of 2024, and God is on His throne today, and all of God's people said. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be coming to a few verses of Scripture in Philippians 4 in just a few moments. As you're turning there, just a couple of things I I think I need to share with you. First, on Thursday night, uh, the new elder board, some returning one new one, James Ogden, joined us on Thursday night, but we want you to know that, that, as always, that first board meeting of January, we elect our new officers, well, they're new in some respect, because Brian Vlieg will continue as the chair, the moderator of our elder council. Uh, Josh Herberger will be the vice president of our council. Eric Morgan will continue as the church clerk. We just want you to know that, but pray for the entire board. And thank you for, for that. Also, we mentioned to you just before Christmas, the timing couldn't have been more challenging. Our soundboard went out. And so Grace Fellowship had loaned us a soundboard that has carried us even through this Sunday and maybe the next. But a new soundboard has arrived. And they're tweaking it in the back uh, even right now. But as we mentioned a few weeks ago, right before Christmas, soundboards are not cheap things. And we got a remarkable deal, really, overall, costing around $30,000 for a brand new soundboard. And we had mentioned before Christmas, if you just want to voluntarily help us deal with some of those costs, we we would love your help in any way. This is not mandated, okay, but if you can voluntarily help us in any way, it would be greatly appreciated. And thank you so very much. Historian Neil Howe. Has written a sequel to his 1997 book co authored with William Strauss, which was then called The Fourth Turning. Howe and Strauss, by the way, were, were the ones who were credited with inventing that term millennial to describe those who were born in the 1980s through the mid 1990s. Neil Howe's new book, Strauss, passed away in 2007, so the co author Neil Howe. Has, has penned a new book, published just this last year, called The Fourth Turning is Here. Again, 1997, the fourth turning. 2023, 2024, the fourth turning is here. And he writes that as America, America has gone through five century-long secular or turning points, and we are now at the end of the sixth. Some of his language may be unfamiliar to us, but a sacculum, as he describes it, is a length of time roughly equivalent to the potential lifetime of a person. And each sacculum, each of these ages, encompasses four generations corresponding to the seasons of the year. This is all created by Neil Howe and Strauss. For instance, there is an era known as spring. And, of course, a time of new beginning. There is the summer, which is an awakening, when the next generation turns against its parents. There is a time of fall, when an unraveling begins to occur, and the institutions around us begin to decay. And then there is winter, when everything falls apart. And Howe and Strauss predicted back in 1997 that a great period of crisis would occur around 2020. I don't know if you knew of anything that happened back in 2020, but somehow their predictions were a little spot on. But in Hal's paradigm, which is sometimes pretty complicated, and some of the timelines are a bit arbitrary, he does seem to apprehend the bigger picture. The sacculum, as we are now in, began a little bit after World War II, and then summer was marked by the 1960s and and the rise of the counter-revolution when everything began to change. And and the fall of this era occurred around 9-11 to then when winter took place, and that very chaotic period that we are allegedly in, which Hal predicts will last until the 1930s, and then spring will come again. And fall and summer and another winter. According to how, winter is here. Now, no one knows what tomorrow will bring, and I don't know what you deal with or how you respond to this kind of secular prophecy and this kind of analysis, but I think no one is questioning the fact that we are passing through a difficult period of history. Christians will be all right, because we are in God's hands. We will be fine no matter what happens, but it seems like hard times are upon us. But hard times reveal who we are. Hard times help us to, to, to discover what we really believe. And it is sometimes pretty easy to trust in God when things are going pretty well, when we have money in the bank and our kids and grandkids are all doing well. But it's a far bigger challenge to rejoice, to give thanks, to walk by faith when the locusts are devouring the fields. The question is this morning, can you handle the hard times? Will you trust in the Lord or will you give in to worry? Will you still be founding, found trusting in Jesus at the flooding of the Jordan? Or will you sink in despair? For that reason, we began a, a series, a brief series last week, just for the month of January, that I'm calling A Strategy for Sanity. And we began to develop that strategy last Sunday. It is is a strategy that is based on, on trusting God and nurturing the kind of spiritual habits and mind that will be the source of our confidence and hope in the coming year. Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 11, at a time when some of David's friends urged him to flutter away like a bird to his favorite mountain hideout because the foundations, as they put it, were being destroyed. And David refused to flee because he had already determined to put his hope in God and his confidence was in him who is enthroned in heaven. That's the first step in this strategy of sanity. The second step that I want us to look at this morning, I'm calling rejoice always and worry never rejoice always and worry never and don't miss those universals always never so how do we how do we flourish how do we continue to move on how do we find peace And what now seems to be a a culture of such profound anxiety, so we are in Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians 4 may be one of the most well-marked and well-worn pages in your Bible. Paul's words that were written from a prison cell in Rome certainly speak to some of our current realities. And as we turn to Philippians 4 this morning, I want you to know not only in this passage, but in all of the Bible, folks, the Bible is good news. Because everywhere we turn, we will encounter bad news. And even as the primary season kicks off tomorrow with the the Iowa caucuses, the New York Times, for what it's worth, ran a headline yesterday that read, Fear, Anxiety, and Hopelessness are on the ballot in Iowa. Bad news is everywhere, but the Bible is our ballast. The Bible will hold us up, and if you read this book, it will stabilize your life. And here's a stabilizing passage, Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Watch again those universals. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is God's. Holy word to us. And all of it is true. And God's people said, Amen. Anxiety. Anxiety is as old as the Garden of Eden post fall. The ancient Greeks called it black bile, the Victorians referred to it as neurasthenia. And our time does seem to be the age of anxiety, so that deep anxiety and worry are are currents that run through our lives, and even as Solomon said some 3,000 years ago, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. So what are you worried about most right now? What keeps you awake at night, or even more, what wakes you up at 3 a.m.? And I wonder if you were to pinpoint the single most anxiety-producing issue in your life, what would it be? We worry about our kids and the pressures they face. We worry about one day maybe paying their their college education. We worry about money from short-term bills to long-term needs. We worry about credit card debt. We worry about the health and well-being of our spouse or maybe an aging parent. We worry about our careers. We, We worry not only about getting burned out in our current job. We worry about having to be stuck in that job with no escape. We worry about tomorrow and the kind of world our kids and our grandkids will inherit. And for most of us, even if we were to pinpoint maybe a particular issue that causes anxiety to rise up within us, most of us would say it's not just one thing, but three or four things that causes our knees to buckle. And when Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, they too were being threatened by all kinds of stressors and pressures, and throughout this letter, Paul has been stirring up in the Christians at Philippi the need to adopt a certain kind of mindset, and that mindset is what he refers to at the beginning of chapter 2, the mind of Christ Jesus. Have this mind that was also in the mind of Christ. And then he begins to unpack what the mind of Christ is. Even earlier than that in Philippians chapter 1, he himself modeled for us what that particular mindset is when Paul said for me to live as Christ and to die as gain so that no matter what happens to me, I will be fine, I will be okay, in fact, I will be great in the end. But as we come to this passage this morning and we we read those words, those very familiar words in Philippians chapter 4, I do wonder who among us would not want more joy and less anxiety? Who wouldn't want more joy and peace in their lives? And in order to get there, the Apostle Paul tells us that there are three heart decisions we need to make. Three simple points this morning, but I I hope you will not allow the simplicity of this to somehow minimize the realities that you are facing. We all struggle with worry, with anxiety, with a lack of peace. But he sets before us the way to recover joy, the way to know the peace of God. Three hard decisions. The first is the decision to pursue joy. Notice again, verse 4, and, and, and I don't think Paul wrote this and then erased it and then wrote it again and, and erased it. I think it just poured out of him. Rejoice in the Lord always. And you say, wait a minute, Paul, that's, that's pretty unrealistic. There's no possible way to do that. And knowing that you might think that, he then said, and again, I say rejoice. In many ways, this letter really doesn't make sense. Paul wrote this letter while he was in Rome, but he wasn't in Rome sipping an espresso at a corner cafe. He wasn't walking around the Circus Maximus, but rather he was under house arrest for the subversive crime of of being a Christian, and he was in constant surveillance by the Praetorian Guard. In many respects, he is surrounded by trouble on all si- on, on every side, and he is all alone. Here's a man who has planted churches all around the Mediterranean world, but it seemed like at this time in his life, near the end of his life, almost everyone had forgotten him, and then on top of all of that, he is facing the imminent reality of his own execution. And yet, as he writes this letter, he is not complaining about his circumstances. He is rejoicing. He was in prison awaiting trial, and he doesn't know how any of it was going to to pan out. And he knew that any tomorrow might be his last day. So Paul had every reason himself to be split apart by worry, to sit in darkness into wine, and yet what we find him doing 14 times throughout this letter is calling himself and us to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. The Philippians, too, were barely eking out an existence financially, Many of them were being haunted by the reality of persecution. There was even friction in the church, and, and he alludes to it. Well, he does more than allude to it. At the beginning of, of Philippians chapter 4, in those first three verses, he calls two women who were co-laborers in Christ and who were no longer getting along to stop fighting with one another and seek unity in Christ. That happens in other churches. It happened apparently in the church of Philippi. It's a good thing it doesn't happen to us. Joy is not only possible when everything is going well, joy is extremely possible even in seasons of deep disappointment. That's Paul's point. So that no matter how things may be going for you, and no matter what you could point to as a source of anguish and despair, you can have joy. So let me give it to you in a double negative. Joy is not the result of bad things not happening to you. Joy is not the result of bad things not happening to you. Joy is the result of a confidence in the goodness of God. And He is good all the time. Rejoice in the Lord because of your union with Christ. Rejoice in the Lord because he is the one who brings wholeness. He is the one who is so absolutely reliable all of the time. He is closer than a brother who does not change. Everything else may change around you. Everything else may be knocked down around you. Our neighborhoods may change. Our schools may be in trouble. We're told that inflation is up, is down, even when the cost of living is up. There are things that are happening all around us that we cannot control, but to rejoice in the Lord is such a unique gift because Christians can know this, that God recasts our difficulties and he takes our disappointments and he puts them in a completely different perspective. You can experience joy because of God. That's why he says rejoice in the Lord. He identifies the sphere of our joy. So where you put your focus, where you put your perspective, what you think about can change everything. If there is chaos circulating around you, put your focus on the goodness of God. So the pursuit of undiluted joy is is not expressed by the Apostle Paul in some detached reality. Paul was not a first century Pollyanna. This is a joy that is in the face of so much cynicism. This is a joy in light of so many difficult circumstances, and yet his joy is anchored and fixed because it is in Christ. There is an interesting exchange between the Greek philosopher Epictetus and one of his students, who, who asked his master, who asked his teacher, what he could do to be wise and successful in life. And Epictetus said to him, That is entirely the wrong request. It would be better to ask how to be adaptable to circumstances. And that's the secret to joy. We need to know how to be resilient, how to think, how to manage frustration, how to do hard things, how to endure, how to laugh, how to love, how to focus on the goodness of God and Christ, and then with those basic tools, with the ability to be able to adapt to any circumstance, to find even in obstacles big and small, that we're able, because of Christ, to experience joy. And there's this thing about joy it's defiant it holds up against anything it is independent of circumstances so that you can you can know joy when you have little Or when you're blessed with much. You can know joy when a dream is postponed or when it blossoms. You can know true, unmitigated joy as one of the distinctive features, characteristics of a believer. Joy is a gift of God for those of us in Christ, and it cannot be taken away. Pursue joy. That's a heart decision. That's something that we choose way down here because of who God is that then affects how we live life. Number two. Not only pursue joy, but the second decision is to be reasonable. <laughs> to be reasonable. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Reasonableness. Other translations say let your gentleness An older translation even says, let your softness be known. It's a relational quality. It's talking about how we relate to one another. And it speaks of of having a generous spirit. A person who is reasonable or gentle has a reasonable forbearance. And one of the reasons why we experience conflict is because we so much want people to, to see everything and to think about everything from our own perspective. We want other people to see it the way we see it. And you might need to hear this imperative that Paul gives us here on a regular basis. Especially if anyone ever says to you, you're not being reasonable. Has that ever happened to you? Being reasonable is the ability to yield. You don't always have to be right. You don't always have to insist on having your way. Unreasonableness is that instinct that exists in every one of us just to dig in our heels and not budge. It's being stubborn. And there's a difference between the person who is reasonable because they are operating from a conviction that is embedded in them in the Word of God from someone who is just being difficult. From someone who just chooses to be stubborn. So let your reasonableness, let your gentleness be known to everyone. And the real measure for whether I'm being reasonable or not is not if I think I am, but whether or not those who are around me see it and feel it and know it, that I'm being reasonable. You see our self-perception is, is often skewed. But a reasonable person is someone who can yield when even better information is provided. So how many times I thought about an issue one way until someone helped me see it differently another way, and I changed my opinion. So being stubborn, beloved, is not a spiritual gift. It's just sometimes being unreasonable. And notice how verse 5 ends. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. It's a great phrase, a phrase that can be taken a couple of ways. He may be referring either to the Lord's abiding presence, knowing that God is always with us, or he could even be talking about the Lord's return. And I think both are exactly right. The Lord is always near, and he is coming back. Both are true. He is near, and so that means he eavesdrops on every single conversation we have. That's terrifying to think about, isn't it? He is present during every every argument you have with your spouse or or every discussion you have with your spouse. He's aware of every tiff we have in the church or at work. So in every interaction you have with others, imagine if, if Jesus Christ has just walked through the door. And he is standing there, right there. You know how that works. You can, you can be having a moment with somebody in person, and then your phone rings, and you pick it up. And you answer so nicely. <laughs> when everything leading up to that moment has been anything but. So the Lord is near. Be reasonable. He's also coming back. So this is something that you ought to be concerned about to do, to be reasonable when he returns. Instead of fussing about everything, being reasonable about everything. And that's a pretty good test as to whether or not something is ever worth fussing over. Is this thing of such importance that if Jesus Christ were to come back at that moment, you would keep insisting on it? If Jesus Christ were to come back, is it worth dividing over? Or do you just need to win? And really, this affects your joy. This affects your anxiety. This is what oftentimes propels you into a life of worry because you always need to insist on being right. And yet Paul says, let your reasonableness, your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Seek joy. Pursue it. It's a heart decision. Be reasonable in all that you say and in all that you do. It's a heart decision. Number three. The third decision of the heart is easier said than done. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're probably all familiar with the name Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was an enigma, immersing himself in the oil, entertainment, and aviation industries yielded billions. And you would think that a person with that kind of money would be the picture of ease and tranquility, but for the last 25 years or so of his life, Hughes was the poster child for worry and anxiety. He was overwhelmed by the unsubstantiated fear that people were out to get him. And so he spent the last two and a half decades of his life living in a hotel where he would oftentimes rent out the entire floor. And those closest to him said that he was so racked by worry and fear that he would sit in a pitch black room all day for long stretches of time, never seeing anyone. And if you ever wanted to communicate with Mr. Hughes, specific instructions were provided. First, you had to take several tissues— cover the doorknob, knock, and then open the door ever so slightly. He was notorious for being a germaphobe. His anxiety led him to severe stomach problems, and so he spent a significant amount of time in a certain room for for long periods of time. And on the rare occasion that, that Hughes would ever venture out of the hotel, he would give specific instructions to his driver that only smooth roads were to be taken, and they were never to exceed 35 miles an hour. On the chance that they had to cross railroad tracks or cross uneven pavement, he had to slow down to two miles an hour. For a man who seemingly had it all, worry and anxiety festered in his soul. And of all the things that rob us of joy, of all the things that take away our peace, worry, worry seems to be our worst enemy. Worry is the enemy of peace. The old English word, worrying. Gives us our word worry, and it means to strangle, to bite, to harass. The things we worry about have the ability to tear us apart, to choke us. And when we worry, we are, we are, not, being, we are not being bitten or harassed by an external enemy. Worry is an act of of self-sabotage. Worry is an inside job. And we get ourselves all worked up. And so the antidote to worry is found in these amazing words in verse 6 and 7, all familiar to us. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me just lay it to you straight. What the Apostle Paul was saying is instead of worrying, pray. Instead of worrying, pray. And notice the inclusiveness of this command. There is no area of life that is excluded from it. Literally, he says, stop worrying about everything. And you know as well as I do, worry accomplishes nothing. It consumes a lot of energy. It wastes us, but it does nothing. And the Apostle Paul is making his case here saying that really there is nothing to worry about. Oh, yes, there's there's plenty to worry about all around us. But there's nothing to worry about because God is in control. Because we know who he is. We worry then because we want to be in control. We, We want to be able to manage everything around us. And worry cannot impart the sense of control that we crave. Why? Because we're not God. We're not in control. He is. So don't worry about anything, but but pray about everything. So don't get all tied up in a knot, twisted around. That just makes it worse. Instead, pray. And pray all the time. And pray about everything. If you're worrying too much and praying too little, switch it. Reverse it. And so he says pray. Pray and supplicate. I love that word, supplicate. It it simply means to ask, but the word was was drawn from the way a a young baby would cling to its mother for nourishment, and that baby would be supplicating. So in the same way, we go before our Father in heaven, and we supplicate because we can let our requests be known to God, and because of who He is, because He's in charge, He'll give us exactly what we need. So there is no reason to worry because we have a Heavenly Father who knows us, who knows our needs, who will take care of everything that we have. So if you want to live a worry-free life, and it is possible, pray. Pray about everything and watch the result and the peace of god verse 7 which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus don't forget that paul was writing that when he is under house arrest and he even takes language from one who's chained to a praetorian guard at different times throughout the day one guy for 6 day, 6 hours and another guy for another 6 hours all throughout the day he's under guard arrest all of the time watching over him night and day and then he takes that imagery of this guard, and he says, there is a garrison that is far more prominent than these men I'm chained to right now. There is a garrison that comes from God himself that guards me every single moment of the day. It's a serenity that comes from being in God and God with you. And God says, I'm going to give you the very same serenity that that I myself possess. I will give you my peace. I will give you my shalom. It is striking to me that the only place in all of the New Testament where this term the peace of God is used is right here. God's peace. My peace, God says. I give to you. Remember Daniel? When The king decreed that no one could pray. And yet he returns to his home and he opens up his window and he turns towards the Lord and he prays as he always had and he prayed with thanksgiving and he prayed with supplication. And the result that came to him was peace. And even though he was arrested and thrown in the lion's den, that night he slept like a baby while the king in his luxury, in the luxury of his palace, couldn't sleep at all. But Daniel is sleeping because he has found and experienced the peace of God. Friends, in this passage, Paul places before us, God sets before us a choice. It's the choice of whether having and living with anxiety or the choice of living with joy. And here's what has been discovered by, by all who have sought to live in Christ and for Christ. You cannot have both. You cannot have both anxiety and joy because one will push the other out. They are incompatible. One will cancel the other. So that when our joy increases, then our anxiety recedes and vice versa. So do you tend to lean towards joy or do you tend to lean towards anxiety? And if you lean towards anxiety, what should you do? Don't worry about anything. But in all that you do, pray. And pray with thanksgiving. Pray with gratitude. And the peace of God will come. And it will sweep over your life. And your anxiety and your worry will be replaced by the joy that is found in Christ. That's why Nehemiah could say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. So there are three decisions of the heart that we can make every single day that will determine whether or not we have this defiant joy or we are strangled by anxiety. Focus on the goodness of God. And pray about everything and worry about nothing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning and thank you for the clarity of it. Yeah, there is a simplicity here, Father, but there is also a depth that I think every one of us in this room can identify that, that yes, while it's easier said than done, there is in Christ this, this bottomless reality that in him, no matter the circumstances we face, no, no matter the challenges that are all around us, whether we have, we have entered into a phase of winter so that hard times are upon us or not, it matters little for the one who's put their refuge in Christ. And so, Father, I pray, we pray together that you will make us a people of of defiant joy. And that we will choose joy. That we will pursue it. Not because we can manufacture it on our own, but because we are focusing on the goodness of God. We look to you. And we know that from your good hand will come everything that we need. Help us, Father, not to be cranky or grumpy but reasonable. So that, Father, in all of our interactions with one another, even when the pressures of life seem to be closing in, there will be this gentleness that is the gentleness of Christ that marks our lives. And then, Father, when worry seems to swell, when it seems to to lurch back and grab us by the neck, may we pray. And pray all the time about everything with thanksgiving, And then, and then know, as we wait upon you, your peace will fall. Your wholeness, your shalom. Father, your tranquility will come. For as we have said often today and have even sung about it, Father, you dwell in heaven. You are enthroned there. And you oversee all things. And even if the earth itself begins to shake, heaven is never shaken. And even, Father, if things are falling apart down here, they are never falling apart up there. For tranquility around your presence is always there. And that's where we are. That's where we want to be. So, Father, we set our affections on things that are above. Therefore, we set our affection upon you this day. We focus on you, who you are, and we find in you the sanctuary, the refuge, the help we need, whatever the trouble may be. And so, Father, the call comes, and we don't want to forget it today. Rejoice in the Lord, always. And again, I say rejoice. Thank you.